Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snow Pro Ski School based here in Switzerland. This week uh, I'm joined by Lynn Mill and uh, Lynn joined me by um, via Skype uh, to have a lovely chat. I really, really enjoyed this one. Um, a lovely chat with Lynn who's based in Val d'Isere in France. Uh, Lynn is a former member of the British ski team. Um, she is a trainer for Basie. She is also on the uh, the Basie demo team. Um, and in this first half, we had um, we had a, a wide ranging chat, but uh, we we covered sort of many many topics. But one was was about Val d'Isere, uh, which is quite a big centre for 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 British skiing. There's a lot of the training body is based there. Um, or certainly one big half of it, it seems to be based there. Um, we talk about her, her history, uh, skiing history and background with the and experience with the British ski team um, and the experience of becoming a Basie trainer and, and, uh, and experiences on the demo team for the last couple of cycles. So, uh, so yeah, there's, um, there's, a, there's a lot in this first half. This is quite a long one and there's two parts of, uh, of, of one hour for, for you to enjoy. Um, thank you for all of those that, that, that do take the time to get in touch with me. I really, really appreciate it. Um, thanks to Jamie Stevens, who uh, recently wrote to me. Uh, hi to you, and thanks for your lovely message. Um, and uh, enjoy this uh, this first half of the podcast, and I'll catch you in the middle to let you know uh, what's coming on the second half. Uh, Lynn Milk, welcome to the Ski Instructor Podcast. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm good, thank you. It's nice to be on here. It's nice good. to chat to you. Nice to see you. Well, exactly. We've chatted once already as a, like a pre, pre, uh, pre-chat chat. But um, yeah, it's good. It's good. Uh, how's things with you? You've just uh, you hustled, hustled Dougie out the door with the baby, and you're free. Yep. So I've just got a little bit of peace and quiet, which is lovely. I have to admit, I sat down for two minutes before I called you and just took a deep breath and enjoyed the quiet. Uh, Effie, uh, my little girl, she's 10 months and she is a lot of fun. She's going through a slightly noisy spell at the moment. So she's finding her vocals. She's got a few consonants, but really she just screams a lot. Oh, in protest, right. in happiness, and everything. <laughs> so it's nice to have a bit of peace and quiet. It's great. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's great times. I have to say, though, um, you know those. Yeah, I sometimes look back at the pictures. Like you know, we're what are we three and a half years into this now, and uh, uh, yeah, and you look back at the pictures and you're like, wow, she was so small. It's like crazy, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it does go scarily fast. I see a lot of newborns now and realise just how far we've come. I know. And, uh, each funny. new age leap is exciting in itself. So I'm measuring it in terms of like uh, equipment that I'm managing to jettison. So we just got rid of like the buggy, like this sort of McLaren buggy that we used to we used rarely actually. We don't really have any sort of need for it you know we either drive everywhere and go somewhere but we don't we just don't use this buggy thing and and i want i don't really want to be pushing my daughter around everywhere i'm like no if you if you can walk then we'll walk you know it doesn't matter if we don't go very far but you got to walk <laughs> and um and yeah and and then every now and then like you see 
I know, like a, another new parent like yourself, you know, like you know that big bag that you carry around with you everywhere. It's like eventually that big bag goes and it's brilliant. Like you can just leave the house with a rucksack and you start to get out of the house on time and all sorts of stuff. It's really, yeah, it's cool. It, it you gets, mean it, we don't have to pack for the apocalypse every time we leave the house anymore? It's unbelievable, isn't exciting. it? Like the, the stuff you have to carry, the, the amount of stuff that, that such a small person generates. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Effie, this winter, she had more ski suits than Dougie and I put together. <laughs> she had some amazing snowsuits. They were gorgeous, little, tiny, cute. She was only, so she was born in August, so for winter she was, you know, four, five, six months mm. for the bulk of winter before we got shut down. She had these amazing snowsuits. They're incredibly cute. Um, but, yeah, I've just realised none of them will fit next winter, so I'm going to have to go and uh, get her kitted out again. Uh, but I wish they made onesies like that for us because they look they're super brilliant. Cool. Yeah, for those cold days in Val d'Isere, they'd be awesome, wouldn't they? Like those sort of down, down one-piece suit. It's uh, Yeah, exactly, exactly. The, um, Effie even got a season ticket this year. Oh, yeah? She, you know, for number five season pass. Oh, cool. Which she had to have to get on the list. Even though she's free, she had to have a pass. Yeah, yeah, that's, that the, that's the rule. We were... That's the rule. Very excited about that. That's gonna it's be good fun. Yeah, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do your? I have to say, I so I went up, I went up to the top of Morjan initially with my daughter, and I, we had one of those backpacks, and I put her in the, the 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 backpack, and she just loved the sensation of skiing down. And I saw kind of a couple of the sort of the the wise old heads from other ski schools, and they were like, "Oh, just be careful, you know, like you got your kid on your back." And I'm like, "Yeah, don't trust me. I'm being as careful as I can, you know, like it's." It's not like I'm doing this, you know, on a whim, but she absolutely loved that sensation of skiing. It's something about being in the turn, you know, like, and, um, yeah, it was really, really, really cool. So, uh, so, so yeah, and now she's skiing. She was, that was the worst bit about this COVID thing is she got, you know, we got sort of cut halfway through the season, just as she'd got from the top of Morjan to the bottom of Morjan. I was like, yes, like we can ski now together, like it's on. You know, I've got someone to go skiing with, and uh, and yeah, and then lift shut. So she was gutted. I was gutted. Oh, but that's shame. It is a shame. I'm gonna. I've got oh. a sort of wild plan that I think, if I remember rightly, the access to the Chavinia Glacier is reasonably easy from the Chavinia side. From the Zermatt side, it's pretty steep. Um, but I think, and there's a quite a relatively easy T bar. The T bar at the bottom of Chivinia, isn't there? So you could kind of get. Yeah, there is. You could kind of get there, and I'm thinking, oh, it's oh I far. think you can. Yeah. From the Chivinia side, it's a very gentle slope down onto a flat traverse, and then the first T bar you get to is the park T bar. Now, forgive me, they may have changed the layout, but I yeah. highly doubt it. So you've got a little T bar that accesses the park. Yeah. And it's really short, and oh, it's, it's really steep. flat, and that's yeah. where we. I remember taking low level. Well, they were ski racers, but yeah. low-level ski racers to do all their foundation stuff in there in the summer. Yeah. You don't have to go all the way to the top. You don't. But so. if you did go all the way to the top, you've also got a really flat T-bar at the top, but we're talking about almost being at 4,000 metres, so yeah, how was, she would cope with that, don't we? Well, that's the only <laughs> thing that really that really worries me about the altitude. I, I really need to do some research, because I, I remember it was, in, it was in Chamonix last year, and they said you can't take an under a certain age kid up the Aguil de Midi or, or up on the lift because it, it goes up in altitude too quick and it messes with their ears or something. Um, so I, I don't know. Yeah, 
So all my pre sort of uh, pregnancy birth classes were done in Bergsamarie, so we're at 850 meters. We're not high, mm. but all the resorts and the stations, the the mums were coming down. Um, from them, so most of the mums are living at altitude, yeah. so quite a lot of chess about altitude, and they were sort of suggesting that it was early stages, first couple of months, going up in ski lifts wouldn't be great, but if you drove up to the same altitude, it's fine, you're just going up slower, uh, so, okay. uh, so from Bergsamarie, they were suggesting not to take the funicular up, but to drive up to Les Arc, for example, yeah. or... Um, in well i guess it kind of ruled out going up cable cars for a while if you can't drive up the side of them but yeah, yeah. uh since then i think once they're older it's not too bad but i guess the higher the altitude the more it's going to play havoc with ears popping or not popping and that kind of thing yeah it's but pretty, pretty... i looked into this as well because um obviously it's a big part of our lives and one of the things we wanted to make sure was that we could involve effie in our mountain adventures in our lives as much as possible and not put them all on hold because of her um, and how we could do that safely and not be selfish about it but yeah. let her enjoy her time in the mountains and you know for example flying on an airplane um, I think the cabin gets pressurized to around about 2100 meters and that happens in quite a quick space and time that, uh, that you okay. reach that altitude inside the plane for example so um, I think they are capable of changing altitudes fairly quickly as long as we're not going silly about it and uh, yeah. just being a bit mindful and careful yeah but that put my mind at ease a little bit i really wanted to go over to italy for lunch yeah i love and, it i'm um, over there tomorrow yeah over. but when effie was born we had to decide how many weeks we had to wait before we could drive over the top which is <laughs> About 2,100 meters. So and then are... I read EasyJet's policies on little kids, and they said you can fly after two weeks old. And I was like, well, if you can fly at two weeks old, the cabin's pressurized to about 2,000 meters. So we yeah. can drive over. You can get over there. That's fine. <laughs> and off we went. There's a lovely restaurant on the way down the, in just as you come into La Tanya. It's on the corner on the right-hand side uh, as you come down those twisty roads. I remember having a lovely lunch lunch there. But that's that's where we'll go through tomorrow. So uh, so we're off, listener, off to uh, off somewhere south on a motorbike tour tomorrow. And um, on me and a buddy. And, yeah, we'll be going over, over the Col de Grand Saint Bernard and then the Petit Saint Bernard. And then you have yeah. a choice then as to whether you, you really go south uh towards Val d'Isere or you head over into mm. where would it be like Beaufort that kind of way um but yeah we'll see see where the road takes us so that'd be cool yeah yeah all right so uh, well if you do head up with yeah. Mermaid de Rosalind yeah go for it that would be you driving past our, our apartment we're oh, at really? the very bottom of that oh yeah oh cool we're right. very nicely located I mean yeah. as much as I work up in Val d'Isere we live in Bourg-Saint-Maurice just because well, for summers, for example, we're at the bottom of all these amazing calls and the links to places are a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about that. So yeah. so normally we'll, we start with you, but let's talk about Val d'Isere. So your, the majority of your work is based out of Val d'Isere, but you chose, yeah, what, what, right. what took you there in the first place? I can understand why you'd live in Borg, which is a bit further down the valley, because there's, I guess, a bit more life in the summer and stuff, but... Uh, how did you end up in Val d'Isere in the first place? Well, a little bit unintentionally, by accident, I would say. Um, 
I actually worked uh, for Malcolm Erskine, who I know you've done an interview oh, with right, at okay. the British Ski Academy for yeah. four years as his um, girls head coach. Okay. And I was thoroughly in love with that lifestyle and that job. And work. it was when he was in Les Uches. So okay. It was a long, quite a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, while I was there, Malcolm was always really nice at being flexible and allowing me to go off and continue training and learning and and so I was a level four. Yeah. Um, at the time, I finished a season. The racing season finishes really early. And there was one season we finished, start of April. Easter hadn't happened yet. The racing was done. The athletes had gone home. A friend of mine called um, Blair Aiken, who ran New Generation at the time in Val d'Azur, um, the... asked me if I wanted to come out and do some part-time work. Is Blair the, Sc- the, the Scottish guy? Um oh. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, of course he's a Scottish guy, but um, is he the guy who does all the British backcountry stuff? Is that him? The very man. I love to talk Scots. to him. Uh, like, yeah, to he runs British backcountry now. Yeah, okay. We've got quite a lot to thank Blair for because he planted the seed one year we were in Hintertook, so I was finishing my level four teach, mm. staying in the same hotel as the trainers. I've known Blair since we were kids. And he mentioned about ski instructing and coming to work part-time. I wasn't sure and sort of said, well, we'll need to get there first. We need to get fully qualified and mm. part pro and things like that. Um, and I wouldn't say I wasn't invested in it. I was just loving my job as a coach for mm-hmm. the racers. Um, but anyway, I ended up going over and working Easter part-time. Uh, so part-time just means I'm coming in to do the holidays, yeah. two weeks. And just having the best time and the things that really stuck out on a personal note were, I guess, related to the job a little bit. It was quite a change of scene to work a nine to five and then leave the clients behind and go home and have my own time. Coaching is very much a lifestyle rather than a job that you can come and go to. Mm. So that was, I guess, refreshing. Um, I enjoyed the different levels to teach and coach. I got given a really good kids group. So I was seeing the sort of high end of teaching. If we, at that point, people very much saw teaching and coaching as different things. And I, I really don't see it that way at all. But mm-hmm. um, I had a high level of, um, yeah, kids to coach, um, even though they were in that bracket of ski lessons rather than race training. Yeah. Um, so I was ripping around, exploring this fast Killy like I'd never sort of really seen it before. I'd only ever been before as a racer myself and skied the Stad and Teen, and that was about it. Yeah. So exploring this huge resort, the weather was glorious, the snow was still really good, um, and just fell in love with everything about it, really, um, in terms of, it was just great, the buzz, the atmosphere, and me was in a really happy place, and I think I just found realized I'd found, I want to say found my calling, it sounds slightly cheesy, but I realized how much I was enjoying the the teaching and the different flexibilities that gives and the also the different challenges um, and the progression. So I had some beginners as well that just progressed really quickly and I'd seen that before during shadowing hours, but they were often done indoors dry ski so it was not quite the same as being out on the mountain with them yeah and taking them from nothing to well you know what it's like when you've mm. taken someone by the end of the week right around the resort and it's really fulfilling and uh, rewarding so yeah that kind of changed swung my 
thoughts a little bit. And so the next winter, I ended up being there full time, and I still feel a bit little, a little guilty to Malcolm, who I promised that I was never going to leave him. <laughs> Here I did. <laughs> oh, poor Malcolm. So, um, oh. yeah, I left and went full time in teaching. Okay. Ah. And and that eventually led. Well, let's um, let's 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 carry on with the topic of Aldezeb before we jump into the uh, into the rest of it. But what as a resort? I mean, it's an amazing place, right? It's, it's got great altitude, and and there's a, a wide variety of different types of skiing. You know, there's there's some trees and there's some kind of rocky stuff. If you head over to to teen, isn't there? Um, I, I suppose the bit that's always struck me about that is it seems it seems so remote because it's really tucked up right at the end of the the, the national park, the, the Vanoise, isn't it? Um, it's a long way from anything. And that's always the thing that I love about here, you know, where we are in the Port de Soleil, is like I can jump in the car and I can be in, I don't know, Montreux in, you know, half an hour. I can be in Geneva in an hour and a bit. And it's kind of, you're not that far from civilization. That, that's always the bit that struck me about places like Val and Teen is that they're just so flipping far away. Is, is, that, is that the experience when you're sort of living and working there? Are there many people who, who how would you say, like, you know, live the Val lifestyle or does everyone kind of live down the valley and then, then commute up there? Yeah, so Val is right at the end of the Tarantes, yeah. And in winter, it's cut off. Uh, it doesn't have the ease around the call open there, so there's no exit from the other end of Val. Mm. Um, I know people that live all year round up there and enjoy the tranquility that the inter-season spring. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for anyone that's ever been in a resort that's sort of custom-built for a, a particular season, whether it's summer seasons, winter seasons, they always are slightly odd when they're out of season because yeah. Yeah, regardless yeah. of how many people live there full-time, it's designed for a heck of a lot more people than will ever be there out of season. Mm. So it can seem a bit eerie and tumbleweedy. Um, I used to live up there for the winters. I did, a, um, oh, I'd say, six or seven seasons living in Val d'Isere, but that was before I lived in France full time. Uh, so there's a lot of instructors that are doing the seasonal shuffle, yeah. being in Val d'Isere for the winter and then go back to the UK for the summer. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you're doing, you're as well being up there. You're not driving every day, you're not commuting. And yeah. it's a nice place to be in the winter. It's got a right buzz about it. Um, one thing I particularly like about Val is that it's got a lot for families. Mm-hmm. But equally, you could have a, a group of, well, stag or a hendry or something like that. They've yeah. got lots of things to do as well. It does cater and, and cover a lot of different groups of, of holiday makers. But, um, yes, those of us that live out here all year round now, the majority are down the valley. And every morning there is a huge group of us heading up the hill who do try and co-share as often as possible with the driving and, and whatnot. But um, yeah. it's very common to live down the valley simply because it's on a level all year round. It's more, well, it's a working town. It doesn't it doesn't change for inter-season. We do See in Bergen and flux of people in the summer, actually more than in winter. Yeah. Um, but it's got everything we need from schools, hospitals, yeah, shops, yeah, supermarkets, yeah, sure. you know, everything here. Um, so a lot of instructors do pop up and down. And, and so it's quite a community of us that can help each other out if you need a lift home, you need a lift up. 
um, it works quite well that way. A lot of people worry about the drive and are quite dramatic about how long it takes, but really we're talking 35, 40 minutes from my place anyway, up yeah. to the car park that we use. Uh, and it's just the it's part of your day, the thing that happens between 7.45 and 8.15 kind of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. a lovely commute to have. There's worse commutes there. So if you're sharing it with somebody, it makes it a lot easier. And it's actually quite nice warm-up um, time in the morning. Take my time to wake up. Yeah. And uh, the same on the way down, decompression time. Just for that sort of half an hour to myself in the car, it's quite nice at the end of the day. No, it's true that. I live, so I live at 1,100 uh, metres in Valdilier, but every resort I go to is, is a drive somewhere. I've, you know, go over to Villa, that's half an hour. And I, t- I don't mind that time. It's quite nice. You know, sit in the car, put your own music on or your own whatever it is you're listening to and just, yeah, you arrive kind of in quite a nice frame of mind despite yeah. what has happened, you know, before you've left the house as you're probably going to find this coming winter, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's say... I also enjoy the fact that in summer I barely use the car, so it kind of cancels itself out. Yeah. I sit in the driveway and recycle everywhere, walk everywhere around Berg and whatnot, so... Oh, it's really cool. It's nice to get out of the car, actually. I'm in the car a lot, daily, probably. But we had, uh, last summer, we, we booked... Um, we had this thing where we wanted to see what it was like to live by the sea. So we booked an apartment, like somewhere on the coast of Spain, somewhere near Barcelona or whatever. And um, I literally parked the car up and, and we just cycled everywhere. Like for a month, we were down there. And um, yeah, it was all right. Like I'm not a big fan of Spain, but it was nice to get out of the car and not do anything. You know, just like walk everywhere or cycle everywhere. It was, it was quite quite pleasant in its own way, you know. It was all right. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, um, tell me about um, let's let's talk about you a little bit. So you've been skiing all your life. Are you gonna you're gonna tell me that you're gonna tell me that you were another one of these kind of uh, hardy Scottish skiers? Grew up, you know, with the snow going sideways. You know, <laughs> horrible conditions. I was super lucky. Um, <laughs> I don't really remember learning to ski, uh, which doesn't bode well for. Oh, excuse me. Um, I don't remember particularly learning to ski I was that young um but definitely was back in Scotland dry ski slopes Glencoe Glenshee I think I think my first proper skiing was in Glencoe at four years old okay um I can't imagine it was that pleasant Uh, I haven't unfortunately skied in Scotland for years since um (laughs) I was very then very very lucky to do a lot of skiing abroad Mm mm-hmm so once I was old enough, um, I started using school holidays to go on um, ski club camps. Okay. So uh, I was a member of Glenshee Race Training mm-hmm. when I was uh, very young. And so we'd train every Saturday, Sunday up in Glenshee. I mean, I'm talking about being eight, nine years old. So when I say training, we were free skiing and jumping through gullies and yeah. heather hopping, whatever we could manage in the weekend. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, the times that we didn't get to ski, were purely because the road was blocked due to snow and never because there wasn't enough snow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the good fun Scottish weekends, but um, where the reward for in our ski club would be to go away during school holidays, uh, places like Team uh, during October weeks or um, Austria during sort of Christmas and New Year. We used to have races out over New Year in, in Innercrens and Austria and um, 
I did start my first camp away really quite young. I think it was sort of 10 or 11, which I've, well, it was young for me. Every kid is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the 10 day trip to teen. Okay. And uh, it's funny because I used to love teen and really think Valdezer was very snobby and I didn't really <laughs> like Valdezer. And now <laughs> here I am absolutely loving it. But that's because I got to know it a bit better and got to know that the restaurants on the snowfront are possibly not the cheapest to go to and the, there's nice little gems hidden in the back streets and things. And yeah. But um, yeah, I was very fortunate. I've been skiing my whole life. Uh, I did a lot of other sports, but it got to the point that skiing got a bit serious. Um, when I finished all the ski school levels, my parents asked the, the manager at Glasgow Ski Centre what, what should she do next? And he said, well, she could join race training for fun. At that age, they gave... Uh, they did race training for kids to do things like relay races. It wasn't very serious. It was all in the name of having a good time and got yeah. really into it. And, uh, yeah, no, it snowballed. I could, it would take me all day to explain every different aspect, but it was amazing uh, to have the opportunities I did. I'm an only child, and I think that helps. I've got very, very supportive parents who mm-hmm. did a lot to, to keep me on skis. And eventually, after I left school, I went full-time on the British ski team and I trained a year in the development team, which was a new thing at that point when they got the English and Scottish teams together, took Mm -hmm. us out and got us a season full-time. And then that got me selected onto the British senior team, which was on for five years. So it was essentially my job as a ski racer. That's, uh, I was fully committed to it. So what sort um, of, what sort of level were you racing at with the British ski team? Well, um, I'm trying to remember the number of fifth races I've started. It's way over, I think it's way over 300. Okay. 200, top end of 250, between 250 and 300 fifth races. Yeah. I was pu- trying to punch into Europa Cup, mm-hmm. um, but that was towards my second last season, which is unfortunately when I was recovering from an ACL reconstruction, lost a bit of my mojo as I was about to try and tap into that level and never quite got into Europa Cup standard. Yeah. Um, 2006, I was desperate to go to the Turin Olympics. Mm-hmm. But um, again, the Olympics aren't black and white, straightforward. Athletes that qualify for Olympic criteria also need to qualify for their country's criteria to go. Yeah, and I've heard that, yeah. Olymp- uh, Winter Olympics, as summer as well, I'm sure, are very, very expensive and I couldn't quote you exactly how much it cost per athlete to go, but they couldn't afford to take everyone Mm. that would come under the IOC's um, criteria to to go. Um, So, yeah, I never went, unfortunately, to the Olympics, which was a real bummer. Did the option at that time... What I, what I see my role in the podcast is, is me trying to ask the questions that I would ask if I was listening to this in the car. So... Yeah. I would would so so occasionally I have like a flash of inspiration. I'm like, ah, I've got to ask this right now. But the is that would the option have existed back then to pay your own way if you qualified for the Olympics? No, uh, it doesn't. So you've got to you had to meet the British standard, and then so in addition to meeting the Olympic standard. Yeah, so they uh, okay. actually, if I'm completely honest, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC's mm. criteria, their standards, uh, their yes, criteria to, mm. to uh, go to the Olympics is actually quite low. Okay. It, was, it was fairly easy. Um, so there was a 
about eight of us at the time that could have gone on that qualification. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the individual countries then put their own um, criteria upon the Olympics and uh, that just controls the numbers that go a little bit. Um, different countries are in different positions to send athletes. UK was in a position that they really at that time needed to send athletes that were going to go and potentially win medals or do well um, and do a good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going for experience wasn't something they were particularly willing to pay for. Yeah, uh, Yeah, they didn't want to pay for athletes to go that would maybe just be going for experience. I understand. But I think in hindsight, and I, I don't want to open a political can of worms here, mm. but in hindsight, a lot of funding came from the likes of UK sport. And then when you don't have very many athletes going to the Olympics, they don't see that there's that many athletes coming through from grassroots level. Yeah. So um, the funding did then get cut uh, to Britishness quite severely following that um, that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, things started just to get harder and harder. Uh, funding was less and less. Um I feel it was a shame that we couldn't showcase that we did have a lot of people really knocking on the door of success. You know, as on the team at the same time as Dave Riding, yeah. he was one of the athletes that didn't get to go at that time. Uh, but you know, could have really mm. done a fairly decent job. But what is a decent job? I, I mean, coming, I mean, a top thirty in Olympics, so that would be pretty cool to go home with. Yeah, um, but you just don't know what would have happened. Uh, the only thing that was hard about it for me was seeing the same girls that move around the circuit together and you know you get the, the rough similar positionings and you see how people around you are doing and how they finished and mm. uh, I think it would have been a magical experience but I'd, I'd, it's not something I dwell on that I didn't get to go it's just from then on I don't feel like I really ever it was maybe the beginning of the end of the ski racing career that that came um I well, two seasons after that, but um, yeah. yeah, and it's it's you start interesting. You realise, yeah, where am I actually going with this? Am I ever going to make a career out of it? You, mm. I was getting older. Start to realise that maybe it's time to to make some money and yeah, you know, as much as second jobs in the summer at home working in bars and things, it wasn't ideal. Yeah, um, I hear that. to support it and so on. So there's not that many people who make a living out of it um is there really i think dave dave uh, i've listened to a lot of his podcasts recently you know things that he's been on and you know he's only really just starting to make money out of it now which is absolutely you know you consider the amount of work that's gone into that you know fair play to him but my goodness but i just saw i saw the other day that the the kind of the funding that's gone into uk completely blew my mind how hard he's worked yeah so dave um dave and i were on the team at the same time um i uh, retired, I shall call it, from my ski racing in 2007. Yeah. I remember Dave was the first person I told in our training base. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, he, was, he said, you know, go home, have a good think about it, get refreshed, and, you know, make sure you're sure of it. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty shocking when you hear a teammate decide that they've, they're they going to call it um, call it a day because you see so many talented skiers and something happens mm. and just knocks the wind out of them and they hang up their boots. Thankfully, I've never hung out my boots. I'm really pleased. <laughs> but, you know, um, it's funny. I lost my mind. Sorry. Uh, sorry, yeah. I was going to say, I saw this the other day. So there's one of the schools that I work at. There's um, 
there's three or four kind of really talented skiers who are coming through the ranks in there, and they ski you know regionally at quite a good level um, in the Canton Vaux. And one there's out of those two, two have just decided to quit. They've reached that sort of age, you know, where where other things are more interesting. But they were they're incredibly talented. These two kids, and they've just decided to quit. And I, I sort of said to the third one who I'm kind of reasonably close with and I've kind of skied with him a lot as he's been growing up. I said to him, like, you know, a lot of, if you listen to interviews of World Cup racers and stuff like that, they'll tell you, they'll say that they weren't even, amongst their peer group, they weren't even the most talented one. They're just like the one of the ones that's hung around the longest and kept at it and kept at it and kept <laughs> at it. And that, you know, I said that to him on the basis that, you know, effectively trying to say, look, don't give up, do not quit when things like girls and, you know, going to the pub with your mates and stuff becomes interesting because you've got a real chance to do something amazing if this is is, is if this is the thing that you want to do. If it's not what you want to yeah. do, fine, hang up the skis, no big deal. But if it is what you want to do, don't be distracted from your efforts because other talented skiers like those two guys are also going to fall away. And the next thing you know... You know, kind of, you're you're still the one that's sort of making their their way through this whole thing, but it's not it's not going to happen instantly. It's it, the actual experience of guys who make it to the World Cup or even the Europa Cup. It's just a war of attrition, often, with so much like like with so much else in life. Yeah, I believe the experience and the time is more valuable than anything. So being brilliant at a very young age is is super cool. Mm. Um, but it's really important that there is time to build experience and learn. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you'll know, you'll have probably had someone tell you if I knew then what I knew now, um, <laughs> as in terms of ex races turned, um, instructors, coaches, or just had a few more years on the mountains. Mm. Um, it's a very familiar thing that you'll hear from an ex racer that if only I knew then what I do know now, yeah, yeah. um, and how different I would have attacked the sort of ski racing career and 100% behind that phrase yeah but it's experience and it's learning and it's tr doing other things on skis as well that isn't just smashing down through gates the whole time but yeah. I've been coaching I've been teaching I've been um free skiing for fun I've been ski touring off piece skiing all this stuff that is getting better now that kids yeah. now are now experiencing more of the whole mountain but when I was coming up through the my ski racing, we were very much, we were training gates. We'd literally be disappointed if it was a powder day. It makes me cringe to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would because we couldn't ski gates. And we had to go and ski powder in some giant slalom race skis. Uh, um, yeah. It wasn't enjoyable. Um, thankfully, this information, these people that, that feel how I feel are now the, the coaches and now the instructors and are, mm. are helping develop all-rounded skiers that also ski race and that means that if the ski racing doesn't work out they still have a love for the mountains they could still absolutely rip around everywhere they could still get so mm. many other things out of skiing that they didn't necessarily well i didn't know at the time existed so when i stopped racing um my eyes were opened a little bit firstly to being paid to ski that was really nice mm -hmm. i can thank malcolm for that <laughs> um taking kids Coaching kids and skiing with them was just brilliant. I just I remember yeah. that first day. I yeah. had a powder day in team. 
I just couldn't believe that someone had paid me money to go skiing all day. It was completely new. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, um, isn't it? I, 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 I think that's something that's really, really important. That I, I, I used to look after um, some of the race training for, for one of the international schools out here, and, and, and it was the same thing. that the, the guy who was sort of responsible for the school, the head guy, always wanted his kids to do gates, and he wanted his training session, you know, when these kids came up, for their day's skiing, just wanted to do gates, 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 gates all morning. I'm like, you don't need to do that volume of gates. You know, they need to go in maybe three, four runs. Fine, have a look at it for us another couple. But, but in you know, really, we're going to get much more benefit at the level that we're working for of taking these kids skiing, and just ski, like ski the mountain, ski what the mountain is giving you. If it's an icy day, all right, we learn how to cope with ice. If it's powder day, let's go powder skiing. You know, if there's bumps everywhere, there's ski bumps. Like you, I think it's better to build a more versatile skier in the first instance than someone who who only really knows how to turn left and right. You know, in uh, in, in a giant slalom course. Yeah, I, I do have a funny memory of being in the Hintertooks Glacier in the summer. I was coaching the British children's team at the time, mm-hmm. quite a number of years ago now, but. Um, we had an amazing, it was the, the children's team, it was the best for their age group in the country. Brilliant skiers, absolutely ripped it through the gates. But they had a, a mogul's field, a bumps run down the side of one of the tea bars on the, on the glacier that had formed. And so every afternoon we finished by having a couple of runs in there. Mm. And it was just, just so much fun. But it was <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. This is completely new. No, uh, no concept of controlled absorption and trying to actually um, ski the bumps rather than, sorry, let the bumps determine to them what to do rather than them trying to bully their way through the bumps yeah, and, uh, yeah. and just be completely responsive rather than pre-planned. It, it, it was really good, but it was amazing how tough it was because yeah. you see these skiers and you just be like, wow, they are incredible on piste. Uh, yeah. The first piste, uh, but I think, yeah, definitely... The, the insights changing, the, the methods are changing, the training's changing, and that's why I mentioned at the beginning, we're, we're not, we don't have instruction and coaching now. We, we're trying to blend through the same thing. Things mm. that you deliver, you're teaching as you coach, you know, coaching and teaching, they aren't different things. Mm. They, you know, it very much used to be black and white, well, teaching's lower levels and coaching's higher levels, but mm. then I really, you know, you, you get advanced lessons all the time. I get people that come and just want to improve their carving technique or people that want to go off piste and they can absolutely ski anything. You know, I'm coaching them. I'm not, um, it, it's more sort of, I would say teaching would be more of how you're, you're actually presenting the information you're giving. Yes. Coaching might be more fine tuning that information, bits of in, taking snippets, bits of information, you're fine tuning the performance. Perhaps we could call if we want to, teaching being more a, a training uh, style of teaching. But at the end of the day, I like how we are blending the two pathways together and it's not a black, the coaching and the instruction pathways are now starting to cross a lot more. Yeah, it seems to be, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it. Uh, tuning is a great word and I haven't, hadn't really considered it before. You know, you could imagine it was, you know, yeah, you're right. You know, a, a, instruction maybe is more like a sort of traditional mechanic who would bashing your car and trying to fix bits to it and stuff like that you know putting it all together but tuning performance is a quite quite a different thing isn't it 
Um, yeah. That's quite, that's quite interesting. That's a great word, actually. I'm going to write that down. Actually, um, talk about my sessions as not being ski lessons, but coaching sessions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what your level, I'm going to be your coach. Yeah. I, yeah, ma'am, I'm going to coach them through whatever they need coached through that day. And, uh, yeah, I'm probably going to teach them some new things or maybe I'm not going to teach them anything new, but I'm going to coach them through something else that, you know, you know what instructions like. You sometimes yeah. end up having a session where you've just been an ear on the chairlift and then you guide them safely around in between runs. And, yeah, that's yeah. what I love about uh, my, uh, my job now is just how varied it is and how different all the clients are and what challenges that brings and... Mm. Love it. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, what? What? Um. So, your journey eventually, once, uh, once you'd you'd um, you'd, you'd blown off Malcolm, uh, in terms of like a job, <laughs> his nice job offer for you. Um. You 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 ended up in Val d'Isère, and then presumably, did were you working for somebody else, or were you? Did you set up your own thing straight away? And how did that coincide with with the whole Basie thing? Because you're you're a trainer for Basie, and That's I guess you're on the demo team as well? I am. Good for you. Yeah. Um, so I went to the following season after my lovely part-time party weeks <laughs> in Easter. I went full-time for New Generation Ski School. Okay. And so that was with the, the British backcountry Scott, Blair Aitken. Yeah. Um, and I'd love it if and you some hooked me friends, up with Blair like, at some point. Blair set up a ski school with some of his mates, really. It yeah. was lovely. It was really, it wasn't too big. Yeah. Um, it was just a group of Blair and his mates. So it was a really nice environment, a good team to work with. And I uh, did four years with New Gen. Um, Blair, unfortunately, left after two. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend took over as manager. Um, I stuck on another couple of years, but... It was getting to the point that I would phone the office to to book in clients. So mm. it's difficult because I didn't ever want to feel like, uh, or new generation to feel like I'd taken clients from them and then gone away yeah. um, with those clients. And from all beliefs that I have is that that's not the way they feel. Um, I had some returning clients, but also word of mouth grew, and I had people contacting me more often than I got bookings from the office. So yeah, because yeah. of our contract, we had to go through the office. Eventually, it was clear as day to everyone that, that yeah, okay, you're probably putting in more than we're giving you. Yeah. It would maybe fill in the odd couple of hours here and there. So I made the decision to leave the school, and there was no bad feeling there other than me feeling like I didn't, you know, it was a mm-hmm. shame to leave them. It was lovely being part of a school, yeah. but also I could perfectly happily work independently, see mm. my schedule for the whole year, you know, and just be on top of my own program, and, and I was quite happy to take up take on my own bookings and whatnot. So, okay. um, but yeah, I went independent, and I've been independent now for five years, I like to okay. say. Uh, so I work as a private independent ski instructor. Um, my husband is the same. He is also an independent ski instructor. Yeah. Kind of came through the same pathway, started with new generation. Um, we were together at this time that I went independent. So he stayed on a year with uh-huh. new gen just to make sure I wasn't going to follow my face. Uh-huh. And, then, uh, and then he was in a similar position. So he left and became independent. So we have... Uh, website called Valdi Ski Instructors. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not 
a ski school. We don't employ anybody. It's just us. Okay. Um, and we share the website because it seems nicer to work together than uh, separately. And we do. If, if I'm full, he's my first choice and the of reference mm-hmm. uh vice versa we share clients we work together we work separately it, it works really nicely okay um, and there's about a gang of about well i want to say 25 independent instructors in Val yeah um who all kind of work together in a really nice fashion yeah that people will send work over your way have you got availability oh yeah do great if someone sent you work, you'll do your darndest to send them something back. Yeah. But nobody started the commission thing yet, which oh, um, good. some yeah. friends find quite bizarre. But um, yeah. it's just not how we've done it. Uh, at the moment, nobody's gone there yet, really. We just, we're all, I think it's because we're all mates in a way. Yeah. I'm sure some people charge commission amongst each other. I know the ski schools do, but mm. there's a group of people that have come through the system together. You know how small a world it becomes, ski instruction, mm. as you work up your Basie ladder, it gets slightly, uh, the pyramid gets smaller of people that you're around. You end up being on a course with someone most of the time. Yeah. Um, yourself, for example, we've never met, but have a huge amount of mutual friends yeah. and know all the same people. So I don't know how that's happened, but um, <laughs> that we've not met. Yeah. But, you know, people work together and if someone scratches your back, you scratch theirs back. And I love one of the things I love the most about Val Desert is it's very friendly mm. and friendly amongst instructors, friendly between the schools. Um, there are several ski schools. One of the reasons I never started one is we've got over 20 different ski schools, excluding the big, they call the Ski Francais or... Uh, 20? Blue. That's massive. ...to the big, and Oxygen and the big French schools. Yeah. And um, there's about 20 others. Wow. It's huge. Um, but everyone gets on. Yeah. There's not really, especially amongst, okay, the Brits kind of always hang out with Brits sometimes, but even the British girls versus um, the ESF, mm. we we wave, we smile, we sometimes have conversations amongst each other. Mm. I've been to other resorts, it's not ever been quite that friendly, yeah. uh, possibly just because I've been a new face, but um, that's really interesting. I like it the, for that the, reason, yeah. everyone gets on well. The friendliness thing is is important to me, and um, and and here in the Port de Soleil, certainly on the Swiss side, but uh, and also on the French side, everyone waves to everyone else, and the waving I think is important, you know. Um, but you don't get when I go to Verbier, that doesn't happen. No one waves to anyone else. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's me, but I, I, I just don't see it. Maybe there's <laughs> so much going on. But um, it's it's yeah. Well, it's, when I went to Verbier, everyone waved to me. Oh no! So it's me. <laughs> That's I'm joking. Really? <laughs> I'm joking. It's not you. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. the same. I think that they lose that kind of personalization when the resort becomes so big. You know, um, they've also got you know twenty odd ski schools there as well. So it's, uh, I guess, it's just a question if you can't possibly know everybody. But um, um, oh, it's good that you have that kind of friendly vibe though. That's that's really nice. It makes going to work a pleasure because I go on the hill and I feel like I'm sort of skiing amongst my mates. Yeah, but exactly. I've got clients. They've got clients, but we all shout each other and. Um, it's funny that Val d'Isère is like that. I don't know any of the, well, I know the British team instructors, but the, the team, the ESF, aren't quite the same as the Val d'Isère a lot. And mm. I think what really helps contribute to this relationship is the community service that we do every year. Yeah. Um, there are events that we all get together. We earn our list pass, basically, in mm. return for helping run events. 
and yeah. working. I really like those days because we work with each other. Uh, I try not to gravitate towards my pals. I yeah. try to work with other people, have conversations. It's right at the start of the season. And I think it's a really good opportunity to mm. um, mingle oh, and, yeah, be and yeah. make friends with other instructors. And yeah. Oh, cool. And the other thing is we could just be really, um, you know, everyone's got work. We're, 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 we're not oversaturated for instructors. Um, most of the time people yeah. are busy. And so there's not a lot of rivalry or resentment over people working and people not. Yeah, well, but, see, um, yeah, see how friendly everybody is this coming winter. Maybe that'll be the, yeah. the, 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 the test, the acid test. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It all change. Yeah. Doggy yeah. dog. <laughs> um, so tell me, you're, you're then, so you ended up, you must have then got through, obviously, your British level four, otherwise you wouldn't be working in Val d'Azer. Um, did you, were you skiing enough to a, a points level that you didn't need to do the Euro test? Yeah. So you got the exemption? So, um, yeah, I skied, um, to 30, uh, 30 slalom points and 30 giant slalom points. So I didn't need to do the Euro test. Whoa. Which was that's, that's impressive. That's thanks. some serious, serious skills. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, I did consider for a while, I did a lot of Eurotest training um, yeah. couple, several years ago, especially myself and Amanda Perry used to run Eurotest training in South Bay okay. for you know, six weeks in the autumn. Um, so it's considering being an opener for a while. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, never made a move on it. And then uh, I didn't realize you have to, if you're being an opener, you have to become an opener within five years of your fifth license expiring. Uh, and I didn't make the move in time, oh, okay. uh, so I basically was too retired. <laughs> and do you know what? It's probably a good thing. <laughs> exactly. Okay, cool. And then what? Tell me what what the selection process is to get on the 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 demo team, or is it is you have to go on the training body first and then the demo team, or is it is it what what's how does that go down? Yeah. So um, this year it changed slightly. So I've been on the it's a four-year cycle in the, the demo team. Mm. So I was in the last uh, trip to Ar um, Argentina in 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to Ushuaia and I was on that demo team. Uh, and that demo team was open to all uh, level four um, instructors, members of Bayesley, mm -hmm. to try out, and there was a, a trial date. But more recently in this four-year cycle that we're currently in, they're now known as the National Education Team. Yeah. And therefore, the idea was to try and get a little bit back, a little bit more back from the demo team um, in their term, and uh, in their four-year term. So, yeah. yeah, you get to go to Interski. That's amazing. It's brilliant. Um, you, you know, you, you're not paid to do that, but your expenses are covered, and yeah. it's a great opportunity. So uh, that's that's all irrelevant. But to try and use that net team a bit further than just sharing the information from Interski. Mm. So um, Daisy had created this national education team to then help develop courses, uh, create working groups with the training body, uh, and have a little bit more say in the sort of education side mm -hmm. uh, of of our courses and our training and Bayesian itself. So then that meant that the doors were closed and it became something that the training body, you had, you had to be a trainer to apply. Okay. Um, so it was open just to trainers um, this last time round. Yeah. And we had a, a selection weekend in Zermatt, uh, which is just great fun, going yeah. and being told what to do. 
roots <laughs> I love <laughs> rather than telling other people. Yeah. And uh, we see in partners and groups and individually and uh, there's quite a lot of a, a technical day uh, yeah. and then there was other parts to the selection process. Um, like present, we had to present um, a topic. I can't remember the, the parameters of what we had to present. We had to present a topic to the other the trainers trying out uh, off snow, so it was to test our presentation skills and mm. uh, how we can talk to people. Okay. It's so nerve wracking. I mean, they're my peers, <laughs> but I never see myself as you know uh, up there. I'm st- I'm still learning every day, and every day I pinch myself and wonder what I did to 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 wing myself onto the training body. Yeah, <laughs> trying to do a presentation in front of everyone. Oh, it was scary. Um, we had an interview with the various different things all took part over a weekend mm. and then they made the selections. Yeah. <laughs> so, Terrific. Yeah. Okay. All right. It certainly makes you sweat. It was scary. Well, it's, <laughs> I, I think it's supposed to be difficult. Otherwise, it wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be worth having, you know, especially when you look at the, the levels of the other nations when you go to winter ski. I think it's got to be good. Um, otherwise... You know, it sort of compromises the quality of what you're presenting, doesn't it? I think you've got to be able to back it up on snow and and off. Um, yeah, so, so. I mean, into ski, the important parts is the, the workshops on snow and the workshops off snow that we're delivering. Yeah, there's the skiing and the demo runs that get videoed, and there's the bit that everyone sees online. But mm. we're we're out there presenting our stuff uh, to. I mean, I'd two groups and that day of our delivery um uh, you know 25 different people from different countries all listening in and taking notes it's really important that we have the right deliverers and presenters as well as good skiers um the skiing uh is important and we're try- we tried to use the the real everyone for their skills basically those that were exceptionally technically ta- talented mm-hmm. great you can be leading this demo and um, we had some brilliant presenters uh, I mean, everyone skis really well, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. everyone has slightly different strengths and together the team was, was really strong this year and it was amazing to be part of it. Oh, that's good. That's really, really good. want to make too much of a big thing but Lynn was my my sort of first female guest on the podcast and I know a number of you have been in touch with me saying you know why aren't I interviewing any uh any female guests and it's just kind of the way that that, that everything is fallen my um my circle of people that that I know to interview um are largely male and that seems to be the the, the, the breakup uh, or the breakdown of of the industry you know there are more men in it than there are there are women um certainly at the level that i'm trying to interview uh interview people which is which is you know interesting um and innovative ski instructors and ski school directors that's that's kind of the the remit of the podcast um the the whole subject of you know male and female equality in snow sports is one that's touched on and it's touched on by people that that you know have written about it a lot more than i have and talked about it a lot more than i have and i'm not particularly interested in getting into the debate of of you know whether it's uh whether there is a sort of inequality in in the industry in fact my my personal view is that you know there is a quality of entry uh into the industry and there is a quality 
uh, all the way through it. If you're good enough, you pass the exams. And I don't think that there is some sort of secret cabal of uh, of people that are blocking blocking women going all the way through. Um, uh, in that respect, we, we we kind of touched on this in the second half of the of the podcast. So we talked. Um, we talked to, about some sort of female-specific um, issues, and I didn't particularly want to go down that road too much because I think if you if you start trying to, it also sometimes it can come across sort of patronising in a way. If you if you you know if we're if we're only talking about female-specific issues with female you know guests, but we did touch on things that I, I think could be useful to everyone. So um, so we talked about the Q angle. Um, which I know that when I did a presentation on that to my own ski uh, ski instructors last year, a lot of them didn't realise that there was such a significant difference in the in the makeup of the male and female body. And I think it's important that that we educate people on that and and show them what sort of things to look out for with regards to their female guests. We also talked about female specific equipment and and uh, and skis, as well as you know. Uh, how we can better teach our female guests um, when they're when they're with us on the mountain. We touch at the end on um, sort of skiing after motherhood and and sort of perception of risk that kind of thing, and uh, and uh, and I think you'll really really get a lot out of of what we uh, what we talked about. Um, in terms of the next podcast, that's already in the can. I travelled to Zermatt and uh, I had a really, really good chat with, uh, with a friend of mine, Damien Franson, who skis on the Swiss uh, demo team. Um, that's a brilliant interview and, and it also kind of, uh, kind of goes down the road of, of what I wanted to do with the podcast this summer, which was interview people from different countries and get away from being so so sort of British association specific so uh, so a nice Swiss perspective on skiing coming up and I'm hopefully we're going to do a couple more of those um, sort of different nationalities too uh, over over the rest of this summer so enjoy the second half um, and I will catch you on episode 25 see you later Um, okay, cool. Let's, um, <laughs> so when we talked before, um, I was in the car on my way back from the dentist, I think, and, and we got halfway into this topic of, um, you are, you are the, the, the female, the premier female guest on the Ski Instructor podcast, which is lovely. Um, and I've had a few emails here and there, and a few, it's like a handful, you know, why has it been all men, why is blah, 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 and, and I'm kind of, I'm aware of it, but I'm also aware at the same time that that, uh, that equality within snow sports is quite a trendy topic, and um, in fact I read a, an article that Derek Tate put out this morning on a, on a similar, similar thing, so let's get stuck into this, but I had some specific questions, and, and maybe we'll tangent off onto some of these other topics that we discussed when when we last spoke um i'm sure we'll tangent off. yeah I'm sure, <laughs> no doubt but um what i wanted to know here's here's a here's a controversial no I, I, i'll give you the i'll give you um i'll give you a softball question first um q angle in skiing with relation to female clients now 
I often talk to, I talk about this to the female guests that, that we have on the mountain and there's a lot of light bulbs that go on with my female guest when I explain the difference in the structure of the body of the, the, the male and the female of our species. Um, specifically with relation to how the skis sit on the ground and also how the sort of the knees arrive. Um, men, I think we can simplify it to say men are, tend to be a bit more straight up and down and um, and ladies are a little bit more curvy. And um, that is something that, that ultimately affects how the female skis. Is Do you... Do you talk about this much in your your day to day um, teaching in the winter? Yeah, um, I mean, I do um, simply because, well, I'm female, and I think I've had a bit more awareness of it happening just from watching my own body and investigating what's going on in my own body. Mm. It's not something I was ever taught about, though. Um, and it's funny because when you asked this question, it inspired me a little bit to think that actually maybe you should write an article on this because there isn't a huge amount of information out there yeah. um there's well i couldn't really find anything from from ourselves from busy um explaining the q angle now i, I didn't have a mm. great look uh, i could be mistaken there so don't quote me on that but mm. personally i was never really taught about what is this q angle what's the difference in their um structures physically mm. um and it really is quite significant and it can affect women differently. There, there can be greater severities and difference in the Q angle. So the Q angle, for those that wouldn't know, is the quadricep angle. Um, you can look at it basically from measuring hip down to knee and then the line up straight from the patella directly up vertical through the leg and this will give you this quadricep angle. Um, yeah. In other words, um, women tend to have slightly wider hips um, and therefore, there's more angle on the knees and more pressure put through the knees. Mm. Um, it's how the upper and lower leg bones meet. Yeah. Right, basically. So I'm just filling anyone in that needs to yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> um, women traditionally have um, higher Q angles than men. So there's just a little bit more force than the knee. And there used to be a, quite a lot of research um, about the severity or the frequency of ACL injuries in particular between um, men and women mm. suggests that women actually are more than twice likely to have an ACL injury just based on these pressures. Mm. Um, I do feel that the injury side of things is getting, it's, it's, there are fewer injuries. This is my own personal feeling um, and this is simply potentially due to the improved equipment and mm -hmm. um, the fact that people are maybe people are catching on to it. Perhaps instructors are talking about it more than I expect they are. Um, but you know, it's definitely something that I discuss. Um, for, for example, knock needs, sort of A-frame, blocked hips are very common traits that you see in females. Mm. And they'll come up and suggest that, well, I've been told I need to get my hips forward, I need to lean forward and, and so on and so forth. But you know, for example, have you ever been told that your, your center of mass is, is generally a little bit lower and further back in women mm. than men just due to the uh, more weight around the hip area yeah um so you know there's one area that's already a little bit tricky um yeah. different to deal with um the other big one and i think this is a more important one is that women's uh, leg bones uh, again it's as 
different and affects women differently and some are not affected at all some are very tall mm-hmm. i personally dislike women's ski boots but male ski boots are very long in the cuff for some women yes who generally have shorter leg wounds mm-hmm. in general so the ankle flex gets a bit blocked yeah. um so if a woman could get a, a female specific ski boots got a lower cuff it's going to help her keep her center mass further forwards um one way of telling i find is if the the skier's got a huge amount of calf pinching going on at the back of the boot, but she's mm. not particularly sitting back that much. Yeah. Um, potentially the boot's just riding far too far up her leg and could do with a shorter cuff. Um, yeah, we, we should probably also... Are, Hello? Yeah, sorry, we should probably also that? say that when you, when, you, um, when you look at the difference between a male and a female calf, so the male, the muscles, what are they called? The ones at the back, um, excuse my lack of knowledge, but the ones that the, the, the calf muscles in essence on a, on a, on a man sit much, much higher up, uh, the leg than yeah. they do on the equivalent female. They come down more. It's more of a longer shape on the female. Now I don't know why that has happened evolutionarily, but if you have a ski boot that has too high a cuff, you're gonna, well, you, you're simply just not going to be able to get often, and you see it quite often actually with female guests, is that you don't, you're not going to be able to get that leg either into the boot or it's going to be too tight, so you won't have that movement with the the lower part yeah. of the leg. Um, it's quite an important one to look out for that one, um, you, you know, because there, yeah. there is a, a huge difference in that part of the leg between the the male and the female. Yeah. Um, in the legs in general, in the body in general, um, males do have more muscle mass as well. So even uh, a male and a female of the same height and weight, um, uh, forgive me, I think average body fat's just maybe 5 7% difference in the average body fat just because males generally have more muscle mass. So things about strength as well come into it. It's not that we aren't as strong for our our design, we, mm. we just don't have the same muscle mass that the, the male body has. So um, when we have all these conversations about um, making allowances for female skiers over male skiers, mm. um, and do you agree that female skiers aren't as strong as men? Well, you know, the science, physically there, if you take a, a male and a female, same height, same weight, for sure he's going to be stronger. It's just the way he's made. And mm-hmm. um, there's other things come into that are different. We've got there's more hormonal changes happen in a female's body, which can then start to play around with the flexibility of a joint and how loose or strong that joint is. And um, I think even ACLs in general are thinner in women uh, mm. than men. And I've just realized that I had all this information. I, like, I need to go and put this out there. So I might write this all down after our conversation. Um, because it is huge that um, I do get a lot of female clients that just hitting their head off a wall, trying to do the same technical changes over and over again. And actually, mm. if we've tweaked around, played with the equipment, it would make a big difference. Yeah, I've got to see yeah. test of the year. I have been, unfortunately, it was cancelled this year. But we're very fortunate to go to the um, Snowsport Industries of Great Britain's ski test. Mm-hmm. And uh, the women's skis and boots that are out there now get better every year. They're really good now. Mm. I say now. Uh, it's maybe also my attitude that's changed slightly. Uh, 
Going in, I've done the ski test for seven years. I first turned up as still quite a fresh ex-racer, I suppose. Mm. And I got put on these recreational women's skis and I wasn't very happy about it. But <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're brilliant. You know, less muscle mass, shorter leg wounds. Get a shorter, smaller boot. Yeah. Have a slightly lighter ski. It's still got power. I mean, the power in some of these skis now are amazing. Mm. Um, and I've got women-specific skis now, which I never sort of thought I would based on the first ever pair that I put on yeah um but no they're fantastic what, um, do, you, what do you ski on now just out of interest what's that? what are you skiing on what's that oh well my favorite go-to teaching ski at the moment is a blizzard black pearl okay um <laughs> which has actually changed its name now so the black pearl is now known as this is gonna be really embarrassing yeah uh that I think one is samba now Okay. Samba or something similar. It's the same ski. Um, it's a it's a free ridey ski. So it's about eighty, ooh, eighty eight underfoot, something like that. It's quite wide, a little bit rock, not too rockered. Um, uh, but just super easy to ski everything. And I'm not if I've got a client that's specifically wanting to carve miles of the piece, I'll throw on a pair of, um, in betweeny race skis. Yeah. Those lovely skis that you get now when you're not a racer, they don't have to be slalom, they don't have to be giant slalom, they're in between. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I do. Like you know, those GS race carves, slalom type things. Um, yeah. So I've got pairs of them uh, that I love, and, and every now and again I'll throw on a pair of slalom skis because they're just really fun. Just because just um, you can. But, yeah. yeah, and also because I spend up this, I didn't ski that much this season, unfortunately. Um, I was recovering uh, when I had a young baby, and yeah. then when I felt comfortable to leave her, I started skiing for three weeks, and then we got locked down. Uh, so that was right. really sad. But oh, yeah. if I spend if I spend too long on those big free ridey skis, I kind of uh, <laughs> get a bit of slack, shall we say, in technique. So every now and again, I'll throw on a stiff set of skis so that I'm just tuning in and making sure yeah. I'm skiing properly. I just, just sliding around, going sideways all the time. <laughs> I've just ordered actually um, my uh, the powder ski for the winter. I'm going to go, and it's it's like a, it's only a I think it's the Castle FX FX eighty five. I think it's only eighty five right. mil underfoot. I can't deal with anything that's that's fatter than that. My knees just won't take it, and I just don't generally yeah. like the feeling of having to kind of crank ski over that far to get any kind of response. So uh, yeah. so I'm generally most of the time I'm on a piece ski, but. Um, but yeah, the eighty-five is just for for powder days. I'd, I'd rather kind of I don't really like floating on it. I'd rather be in it a bit rather than sort of surfing on top of it. But we don't have the yeah. we don't have the mega mountains here that you do there. I'd imagine um, you've got a bit more altitude than we have. Yeah, well, I mean, um, having said that, the stars stars need to line for an epic epic day um, in this vascular. Yeah. We're really snowshoe incredibly snowshore because of the altitude um but that comes with its cons as well um because of the altitude the tree line sits really low so we yeah. don't have a huge amount of tree skiing so when the weather comes in which it does at that kind of altitude often yeah uh, you know so i'm talking about skiing just below three thousand meters um two seven on mm. average for your sort of your the the Valdezer's got two big plateaus. You've got steep sides out of town and then into these big goals and plateaus, and that's where all your beginner and intermediate stuff is. So we're we're talking about all our all our skiers are going up to that kind of height, yeah. and uh, so when the weather comes in and there's no trees around, it gets pretty <laughs> yeah. pretty flat light and quite barren. But um, 
Uh, also, we get a lot of wind uh, at the border with Italy, mm. but we also have our own little microclimate, and sometimes it just absolutely dumps in Val d'Isere, mm. and uh, down the valley, I live opposite Lizark, they might have had nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. So we traditionally get a lot of snow. Last mm. year was okay. Um, lockdown started, and we had four weeks of sunshine. So I'm not sure how Easter would have been for snow conditions. Yeah. It was, it was the the weather year. was being nice to us and making us feel like it was the end of the season, <laughs> yeah. summer. Um, but no, we've had a few winters that have just been unbelievable. We've put down eight meters. It was an eight meter base at the top of one of the, you know, the, wow. the, the lift out of town. It's insane. Mm. Um, we always have enough snow though we never run out um so we have quite long seasons we open the last weekend in november Mm -hmm. roughly until the first weekend in may so you get a long time Mm. and it's it's good until then yeah and you might not always be skiing back into town but unless you're a particularly good skier Mm. those runs are probably not your choice anyway yeah yeah. um yeah so but yeah i haven't had a huge powder day in in well, not this year because I didn't have many days. To say every two but, seasons um, ago, yeah. It's having the right day and it falling in line with the day off. I think yeah. as instructors <laughs> need to be careful that we get that balance of um, skiing for ourselves, but also yeah. making money when we we can because it's uh, a yeah. you know we kind of work for half the year. Yeah, absolutely. And then fill in for the other half <laughs> with um, what we can. Well, but, I'm um, I'm looking forward to your article on Q angle uh, and other bits and pieces relating to that because that's um I've, I've presented that in the past as a as a training session to, to my team and some of the guys yeah. that were on it they had no idea that it was a thing at all you know i assumed that they uh yeah. you know, maybe it was the 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 uh how do i say it maybe it was the limitations of their interaction with uh with with women um that they didn't really know that men and women bo- uh, <laughs> bodies were different but um but yeah it was it was sort of yeah, it, it was a real eye opener to them, and actually, when you once you've seen it, like and had it described to you, you kind of see it everywhere, especially yeah. in relation to the this sort of concept that both legs should be doing the same thing. You know, on left and right turns, they should be sort of getting more towards parallel. Well, if you've got quite a big um, sort of Q angle, and you're quite, you've got quite a, a big hip kind of offset a uh, displacement between the, the, the hip joint you're never going to you're never going to be able to get those two um, those two two edges working together at the same angle or not without great difficulty because you simply can't force the knee to get over that much to kind of offset the the, the angle no. you know it's a it's it's a really really yeah, interesting Yeah I mean you topic. can widen their span yeah which might help them some sk- find their edges a little bit better and not be quite so collapsed in one of them. But the other knee's never going to be able to match the same angle. No. But, you know, people are embracing more, taking on board more footbeds, mm. um, sometimes even some canting. The, the boots are getting better, even binding mounting. If people pay attention to where how a binding's mounted, if it's put slightly further forwards, mm. um, that could accommodate a, a slightly any kind of hip blockage, back seat problems. Um, I just think it's nice to always be aware of the physical and the equipment differences between males and females before we even start to think about the way that females learn compared to males or the emotional side Mm. um, of of teaching. 
we're gonna, uh, yeah, two genders. We're going to shortly come to that, but um, before I start tripping myself up with uh, trying to find the right words, the one of the other things that that I I also have have found in the past is that sometimes on I don't know whether it's so much the case these days, but to offset that kind of extra mass in the hip area uh, in the pelvis, which which tends to be that the, the female carries the weight a little bit further backwards compared to uh, compared to a man, is that is that sometimes ski and binding manufacturers would put like a, a very big ramp angle in the back of the binding so that it's almost like you would be standing, I'm, I'm not, you know, not a mag, mega pair of heels, but you definitely have your heel raised up high, which would then sort of cause you to stick your butt out a little bit, but also have quite a higher, uh, quite a straight backed upper body. And yeah. I've seen that before and I'm like, well, until we change these skis, we can't get you in the right position because the ski is pitching you forward into a into a well, it, the ski binding is pitching you forward into an unnatural position. But at the same time, your body is then trying to adapt to to, to the fact that you're you're sort of on your toes. In effect, it's really strange yeah. why they would do that. I, I mean, I can see why they they think that that might help, but actually, it would be much better just to have a neutral position and let the body do what it what it needs to do. Yeah, so actually I've skied in a pair of, of skis like that where the ramp angle was built into the binding mm. at the ski test. And we all, we were normally testing in a group of three. We normally keep our mouths shut until everyone's had a go in them just mm. so we're not preempting anything. We just, everyone gets a, an honest thought in case, you know, not everything suits everyone. Yeah. But yeah, sure. all three of us, you know, at the end had done the rotation mm. and we were all like, it's like skiing in a pair of high heels. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. And then... The back, which were, were kind of females, can sometimes be a little bit guilty of, of rounding the back, sticking, um, sort of uh, tilting the pelvis forward, so there's a little curve in the lower spine, mm. almost sticking the bum out a little bit. And mm. um, where we're trying to more rock the pelvis backwards and, and tuck the tailbone more, it would yeah. be impossible at that kind of ramp angle. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't, if I'm honest, know a huge amount about right, uh, ramp angle simply because I don't feel like I've much experience in it. Mm. Um, you definitely feel the manufacturers trying to play about doing different things with those women-specific skis, which is why it's a really interesting category to test. Mm. Um, so some, sometimes they'll have a really soft tip, kind of all right underfoot, but really stiff in the tail. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it makes for a really interesting ski down at that. Uh, You'd, I find a, a really stiff tail would just end up, it's not helping as, so I don't know if the theory behind it is to support this extra weight in the back. Or, <laughs> but you find you get stuck there and you just can't move. And then you, you finally get onto the front, you find the front of the ski and it just kind of collapses. So there's nothing there. <laughs> and then you finally come through the end of the turn and get stuck there again. It's always a bit bonkers. What? Good fun. Just out of interest. <laughs> Put all that into words as well, though. We're trying to figure out what's right. This is what I'm feeling. How to actually explain that? It's, yeah, it's tricky. What? Well, um, just out of interest, what do you like in a ski? Like, what? What? What sort of no? Like, what characteristics do you like in a ski? Like, did you? You like the nose of the ski or the the, the tip of the ski to be stiff? How how do you like it to be when you um when you're skiing? Say your favorite ski, whatever that might be. Um, 
so I don't like too much stiffness in the very front of the tail because I like it to be a little bit playful and a little bit easy to use. Mm. So I think as time goes on, I'm slightly getting a little bit lazier slash weaker slash <laughs> don't know. <laughs> but I used to be, I would used to answer this question like, oh, I love a stiff ski. Mm. really want a stiff ski. Like, give me a slalom race ski and I'll be happy. Yeah. But now I'm like, mm, well, <laughs> I'd like something that starts the turn quite easily. You don't have to really work the front tip of the ski. So something a bit playful, slightly lighter in the front end, but then has some good stability underfoot so that if you did feel it, you want to take it right mm. over onto the edge, get your feet a bit further away, push a bit harder and get a real push into the ski, it's going to give you something back. Yeah. Um, and uh, also then just not being a little bit, not feeling like you've got too much out the back end of the ski, but enough to support you if you did happen to fall back seat. Not that I would ever fall back seat at the end of a turn, <laughs> but, you know, strange things happen. <laughs> it's, it's okay to do that, um, you know. It's okay. It- and I'm kind of... Over years, learn to love a wider ski. Um, I totally understand your point you're saying about not being too wide and just feeling like you've really got to mm. work so hard to tilt the ski. Um, so something in the, you know, you're going super narrow, under 70 mil. Um, yeah, you could get over into an edge really, really easily. Mm. But if you're wanting to bounce around in some of the all-mountain choppy terrain, bumps here and there, I do like to have something slightly wider. Um so, I don't know, I'm trying to think where the ultimate width is really, but um, certainly between 70 and 80 yeah. uh, mils would be good. Um, it just depends. Like, I find this black pearl that a ski is pretty wide, but it doesn't feel the width underfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how they do it. It's quite it's quite magic. Nice. That's why I really like it. But, yeah, width that's there for playing around circuits, flatland swivel and, and have a laugh when I'm teaching it feel like I can switch off and drift a bit but yeah. if I was to turn it on there's some support there and it'll still carve and hold an edge and, and give something back at the end of the turn yeah so I guess those differ is more preferable for me okay. but with a wee bit of playfulness at the front end I think playfulness is an important important word and that's that's literally the single word that I'm looking for when I'm selecting a ski like it's got to be a sort of yeah, playful is exactly the right words, the exact word that I use. Um, and strangely, last year I had the, I was skiing the head, mainly I skied last year on the head I race pro. And it was just, like it didn't want to play really. All it wanted to do was carve and that was it. That's all it wanted to do. And it was a really, really strange ski. And it had also that sort of square tip which the head didn't used to do. They brought it in the last couple of years. But it's got that sort of, you know, do you know what I mean? It looks like a sort of, I don't know, how would you describe it? Like a, a sort of, um, I don't know, like the, the top has been cut off. So it's not rounded. It's like yeah. square at the top. Yeah, but it's, and, yeah it's been filed yeah, down and, in a way. And the effect yeah. that that had was that when you when you laid the skis over, it sort of, they sort of somehow engaged the snow and they grabbed the snow and sort of pulled the ski in. Really, really strange. If you can see what I was doing in my hands, it would be a sort of choppy pulling in to the, the turn. Yeah. So and I didn't like what that. What I was feeling, that sensation when you have over-tuned edges, when you sharpen yeah. them right up to the tip, yeah. and right the tail, and it's yeah. really grabby yeah. and aggressive, and you feel like you don't do anything, and the ski's wanting to go, and you're yeah. not asked to go anywhere yet. 
No, exactly. Um, and on, on turn entry, yeah. I like to kind of, oh, I don't know what's the word, not feather the edge, but I like to feel my way in, you know, feel for grip kind of thing. And yeah. and I don't, I didn't like the ski making that decision for me. It was sort of, you know, as soon as it went on edge, it was like, bam, right, we're turning here. So, oh, well, hang on. I didn't really mean, quite mean that. I like to let my feet drift away from me a little bit on the entry yeah. to the turn. And it wasn't, it just didn't let you do that. So, so yeah, now I'm on something with a bit more of a curved edge. Um, yeah, but I mean, I just found the fat slightly softer um, tip. And even my racy skis um, and the skis I'd use for piece performance, um, I do dull the edges quite a lot. I tip and tail them quite mm. a bit. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. Possibly more than most people. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing worse than having a really grabby front end. And mm. um, the ski test is difficult for that because... Um, there's obviously like 30 odd brands there. We're not testing every brand, but yeah. um, that's impossible. But the ski tuning can make an absolutely huge difference to it ski. Can. It and can. you take them back and you're, you're trying to sort of tell them, well, yeah. as nicely as possible, it feels a little bit like this. You know, I liked it, but yeah. there's no point in me just saying it was great. If we want to all learn from this, so here's what I think. And, and you sometimes think it's tuning, so they'll take it and they'll try and adjust it and then they'll give you it back and it feels the same and you're like, oh, Maybe yeah, it's <laughs> maybe it's not that. It's funny. I I, I took a I had a no, pair I of skis. I had a pair of skis no. off of um off of Andy Freshwater. Uh, hi Andy, if you're listening, and uh, he uh, he told me this pair of skis, nice enough pair of skis, and um but I went out and skied them. I didn't bother to reset everything to how I would normally have it, and my God, I couldn't ski them to save my life. Like I think he's a tip to tail man. Like he you know he he wants it sharp all the way along the the thing. <laughs> and I couldn't ski these things to save my life. And it was the same with the head ones, actually, when they came out of the factory. So I changed all the angles to what I would usually have, which I think, I can't remember what it is. And I also deburr about, I don't know, it's at least three, four, maybe five inches off of the, the tip and the tail. And then yeah. the heads became a little bit easier to ski, but they still <laughs> did this grabby thing. They were, you know, it was exactly like you were just saying. It was like, yeah, this is a nice ski, but it just wasn't, it wasn't that sort of, playful ski that I, yeah. I was looking for. Or it's just it's a shame. an absolute tank. It's like a race yeah. car. It doesn't yeah. have any yeah. gears other than going for it. Yeah. Like you skied around in a slalom ski the whole time. It'd yeah. be exhausting. I know. I don't know. know how I did it as a racer. <laughs> but um, now I'm really, really enjoying the sort of... I'm not saying mincy skis the skis yeah. that you can drift a bit and relax a little bit on yeah that's uh, my faves at the moment but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm with you yeah it's uh, you do get skis that are definitely one trick ponies and happy to do whatever you tell it and that's a ski that always rates well because it's just an all-rounder yeah it's yeah this ski's been amazing at long terms going it as fast as possible but when i then try to come down something quite steep and just rotate and pivot my feet, I just couldn't do it. Mm. Then they're not, they don't end up um, ranking that well and they're all round mm. as, you know, ranking in the ski test. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing to do. I love it. And it's good to to help with the clients that are always asking questions about uh, about kit and I'm up to yeah. date with the most recent kit. Yeah. I just feel like I've really missed it this year. Mm. But, bit out of it. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I imagine, yeah, you probably won't be the only one. But uh, let, let's um, let's jump back into male and female skiing. Here's the here's the one that I really wanted to get your advice on because I think it goes more into the psychological, which is 
if I'm a if I'm a male instructor, how can I better relate into what the female skiing experience feels like on the mountain? I think I've got a fairly good idea, but I'd love to hear it from from you as to as to kind of what that looks like and why there are maybe you know this probably relates into why there are so many kind of female specific ski camps now with female trainers because I think probably the understanding mm-hmm. there is of of what you know your mindset is males tend to be kind of t- quite task focused and it's kind of you know, we're going to do this we're going to do that and it's about doing and and you know achieving things and I'm not saying that that's not the same here you go I'm starting to trip myself up already but it, I'm not saying that that's the same but the, I think the female skiing experience is, is different and, I, and, and I'd love to know more about what that kind of looks like. Yeah, no worries. I have done a few um, women-specific ski camps in the past mm. and I guess if I was to line myself up in front of that group and then a group of all males, um, the different approach I'd take, I think one of the things is I don't feel... <laughs> I might trip myself up here. <laughs> I don't feel that uh, women need to always show off as much as sometimes the male bravado encourages. So yeah. if I took a group of dudes out on a stag do and is falling around, for sure we wouldn't stand and chat about what's about to happen. I'd give them some basic guidelines on, on route selection. That if we're going to go down here, there's a left turn. We've got to take it, guys. Yeah. You know, this is a type of gradient let's go off we pop and we get that need for speed in there (laughs) and then as they've had a bit of a blast I'd probably then start to try and please um, and encourage them to get some technical stuff um, if I I could Uh, it's been horribly generalistic no it's okay Uh, generalisms is is, is great Um, I'm not going to offend anyone here if I had a group of women in front of me I think we'd maybe chat a little bit more about how we're going to ski within control, how mm. we're going to ski technically well. Um, I think women like to look good when they ski. I think they like, well, I know that they, I personally, myself, and a lot of the women I've uh, taught like to ski in control, and control is the absolute main uh, point in their minds. Right, mm. what can I do for you today? I'm, I, I lose control in this kind of slope. Or I understand what you're saying, but I just don't quite feel in control enough to try that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really happy to spend a bit more time working on their technical ability before they're going to interject and add the speed. Um, I think coming back to the two different groups, if I was to have them hypothetically, uh, you know, there's not that much competition between a a group of women. Uh, Certainly the groups that we've had have been so sweet and incredibly encouraging of one another. Mm. And the, They'll stand. I've done some women-specific race course camps that were for recreational racers that are trying it for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably encouraged a lot of support. But they'll stand at the top and they'll encourage each other and they'll clap each other down. And uh, mm. there has been competition. Don't get me wrong. Um, especially with those that are, are up there and feeling really confident in it and feel that they've got the control to then let the brakes off. But um, I think a, a group of dudes at the top of a race course would all be all about that timing and, and what time are we going to get and who's going to win. And, um, 100%. You know, let's just get down here and go for it. Um, I think the same time, not all women, some women really enjoy to ask how they are, um, be asked how they're doing, talk about their feelings quite a lot. Um, 
have a lot of heart to hearts on chairlifts with female clients. Is that in relation to skiing or in general? Because my experience is it's 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 also in general. You know, it's like what, yeah, what's, your, what's going on in your chatty. life kind of thing. Is as chattier lessons. So mm. we might not be talking about skiing on the chairlift, but we still have this chattier style of a lesson where once we come off the lift, we're talking about um, feeling a lot more, a bit more of a holistic approach to right. What are we going to try and aim to feel down here? And let's. Uh, as much as they're wanting to improve technically, some women do that through what they're, they they want to feel certain things, and that's coming back to feeling in control. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit feeling. Um, having said that, not all females want to be asked how they are all the time, and they just want to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the, there can be a lot of underlying pressure. I personally, get a lot of clients who have another half or a family they've come away with uh, that they're not as good as where their kids have overtaken them and they're starting to feel the pressure and they're just succumbing to that pressure a little bit to be keeping up in terms of speed. Yeah. But actually, if you look at the group that are skiing, the, the, the okay, I'll say mum, but the female, mm. the mum of the group is the best skier. She's yes. just not the fastest. She's just not able to release the brakes. So for that reason, I talk a lot about the feelings. What What is it that's holding back the ability to just let the ski drift a little bit? It's okay to skid trying to get skidding to occur. Skidding, I have uh, so much respect for skidding. It was a really <laughs> good thing to skid. A lot of people, you know, if you, I know if I was out mountain biking and I skid, I skid on the bike, I feel scared and it's something mm. I need to learn how to do. Yeah. I relate a lot to things that I'm learning to do in mountain biking, downhill biking is one of them. Mm. So it really helps with my teaching. So I'm out and my husband would say, you just got to get used to skidding a bit more. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I know that, but what <laughs> can I do to allow myself to let that wheel skid and not be gripping? Um, and it's been really good for me in teaching um, teaching that intermediate level that they've just not quite got the the ability to let off slightly and let the ski drift, let it slide. They've got to have the edge cutting the snow the whole time. Yeah. Um, so I do find, for those reasons, we talk about feelings a lot more than I would with the with a male client but obviously I have both opposite ends of the scale and sometimes I have clients who are male have skied for a very long time and are actually just like it's time to get better yeah, because yeah. I've realised that I can ski really fast on the slopes mm. but uh, you took me off piece just then and I couldn't handle it and actually need to learn how to ski a bit better to be able to ski more terrain. Yeah. and more options and get off piste and get all mountain and get down a bump slope rather than just hooning it down a piste um with um so, just uh, just just in, res- in in respect of skidding more and those clients that, that could do with you know being in the skid a little bit more how much i mean it's one of the things that i've been thinking about for, for quite a while and it seems to be generally under taught and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, is that it seems to me that rotation of the ski is generally undertaught by, I would say, other people. I'm sure there are people that teach it a lot, but you can get quite a lot about, uh, you know, you're right, you can dig your edges in and check stop like a lot, but actually skillfully steering a ski around a curve, skillfully rotating Good. a ski around a curve doesn't require as much edge but also gives you a whole bunch more control because the edge is working all the way around the curve it doesn't seem Absolutely. to be very widely taught and i don't know who's not teaching it but it, it seems to be forgotten yeah. a lot rotation 
it's our bread and butter being able to ski the ski i feel and i mean just if you couldn't let that ski slide round to a, a gentle edge but sort of feathering the pressure as you need to uh and but just generally cruising it's a cruisy turn mm. um to not be able to do that, to be always trying to fight to get the edge to cut the snow rather than slide across the surface of it is exhausting. It is exhausting, And I've got yeah. so many clients that come in absolutely knackered. They're exhausted because they've they've fitted in 50 more yeah. turns than they needed to in the run because they <laughs> haven't allowed the turn shape to stretch down the hill mm. or to well, stretch longer in general because they're getting the ski around the corner and getting that grip and feeling the control and i don't know if it's the self-preservation instinct that is stronger in some people more than others mm. i could say it's probably also stronger in women than men but generally mm. um it's this fear of letting go slightly and i feel a lot of people want to be in 100 percent control all the time but on skis that's not possible to be in 100 percent. you've got to I, I try and talk about just giving away a few percentages uh, percentiles of control you know, yeah. I can't stop instantly on a button uh, on yeah. the snow. I can know that I've lost a bit of control and I'm going to get over to that side of the slope where it's a bit flatter and I can start to lose a bit of speed. Mm-hmm. If I still need to stop, I'll stop. If uh, I've put in a big skid and slowed down and I've got my balance back, I'll continue. But it's that trust in that it's okay to lose control, say, on this turn here at, at point A in the slope and it takes you to point B 50 meters down the hill before you get everything back under control again that's really mm. hard to get, allow people to, to feel or to trust uh, themselves and knowing what to do yeah. Um, yeah. and not panicking and not just hitting the eject button or sitting back and and then it getting worse as the front of the skis get light um, you know it's hard but to but to me to, skidding is life I, I don't know <laughs> I, I can understand when I first did my first ever Bayesley teaching exam they spent I mean it was the old level what would it be one the old level three yeah or it went one three two one didn't it yeah so the it was what is now um level two is mm-hmm. that right anyway. well, I no uh, yeah. and I spent pretty much the the trainer the training week and the teaching exam week mm-hmm. the trainer spent two weeks just teaching me how to skid because of this X racer coming in, they just had to yeah. carve everywhere. Yeah. And there's a little pair of slalom skis on. I'm carving the bumps, runs, and everything, trying to do slalom between the bumps. It's like, <laughs> right. And it was determined to crack it. It was Jazz Lamb. Oh, it always it all comes back to Jazz Lamb, doesn't it? Um, everything. But, <laughs> yeah. He spent so long just like, do less, do less, do less. Just. Yeah hit me and I was like this is so easy skiing is now so easy I don't need to do anything I'm just like skin around <laughs> because it was so different to carving and performance turning every corner that there was to do on the hill and mm. um so I'm, I really do feel I, I agree with you I feel it's under top this season I was lucky enough to work with a lovely couple and they were quite frustrated after the first lesson. And of course, I take that quite personally. But mm. So we had a discussion. What's going on? What are you feeling? What, you know, let's try and reflect a bit. And they weren't, it turns out they weren't frustrated with me, but they were frustrated with ex- some um, coaching tips they'd had in the past that they'd been working on for the last five years, which was someone, 
and I'm not sure in the nationality. Okay. I don't think they were British, but I'm not sure. Um, and they had spent their whole time on their week of lessons teaching the skid out of them. Yeah. Right? They've got to cut, cut the snow and you've got to let your ski cut edge. You want to leave a clean track in the snow all the time. And was basically trying to get them to find an edge angle at the top of the turn. So that early phase of the turn, trying to roll over onto their, their new edges, which is really hard unless mm. you're going really fast. Yeah. And well, these things that were just really tricky. And then I came along and I'm starting to encourage a skid. I'm like, because things could be easier for you <laughs> if you allow your ski, just tur turn your feet and allow them to, to slide a little bit till you feel that you've got some balance and can press through that ski and get some grip coming into play. Mm. Don't rush it. Don't feel stressed. And they're like, but this is the opposite to what we've just been taught. Between countries, perhaps there are different, uh, well, I know there are, having been at Interski, uh, we're not all different, but some of us are very different. Um, you know, the Canadians, the Americans, ourselves, the Kiwis, the Australians, uh, we're all running from very, very similar manuals and mm. information. Mm. Um, I could add other people in there, but I remember once going to the Korean I first yeah. into ski, I went to the Korean workshop, and it's completely different. Their style of skiing is based around their clients' wishes. In Korea, uh, all their um, slopes are very narrow, and mm -hmm. they're, they're all artificially made, so just long strips of snow. So there isn't a long turn in their curriculum, shall we call it, mm -hmm. in their progression. There's no long turns needed because they don't long turn anywhere. Okay. So they're doing short turns all the time, and they think it looks better to jam the feet together. Yeah. So they jam the feet and legs together. They're, they're super close and they wiggle a lot and they're very, very quick turns. Yeah. And then their, their arms are out wide in a bit of a sort of crucifix position. Yeah. Because again, it's what the clients think looks cool and they want to be able to go in a straight line down the hill and wiggle from left to right. So their progression was really interesting because it went from snowplow mm. uh, in a straight line. Then if you can imagine snowplowing in that straight line, but then step your ski your uh, a ski left ski to meet right ski and yeah. sort of step skid turn and then back to snow plow with both feet and then step the right ski in to meet the left and then slowly miss out the snow plow phase and suddenly you were getting towards a short turn and that was it and it was oh, wow. really really fast <laughs> pathway um but it, they explained that is what our clients our guests want so our system is based around that no none of them not none of them, but they're not. They're not teaching in Europe. They're not teaching a big flat open slopes. So they're yeah, yeah, yeah. on these little narrow strips. So that's how their pathway was designed. Oh wow! Um, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. That's where it came from. I, all, all I do is kind of look at those those videos on uh, on Facebook or whatever, and I'm like, wow. You know, that's not. Oh, it's not for me, but it's a way of doing it. I didn't realize it came from from that. So fair play. Yeah. So then, if they do these <coughs> technical comparison videos, mm. um which uh they're my first in skis second two into skis ago we were great britain were included in which was the yep. first time ever mm -hmm. which was really cool yeah and um, i'll just you know, like to say it was myself that did the male role okay but uh, no it was I really cool to be asked absolutely <laughs> terrifying again because you're like i can ski but suddenly you're in this technical comparison video yeah yeah, for yeah. the canadians this is awful this is terrible <laughs> terrifying um but I kind of liked it because it was pressure and it's a bit more like the way I used to feel about racing. Yeah. You get that buzz of adrenaline and nervous excitement. How but anyway, they get asked to do, yeah. you've got to do a, a basic parallel mm. 
uh, turn, you've got to do short turns, long turns, and um, we had some funnels in there and things to do. Mm. So, you know, bless them, the, the, the trade or the um, presenters that come from a country like that will be amazing at skiing. So they will be able to achieve those tasks. It just might look a little bit funky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do sometimes. <laughs> let, me, um, uh, let me just look, carry on with a couple of little things that you've said there because I, I appreciate the insight into the, the kind of the, the female mountain experience. Um, the... the with regards to kind of releasing the break and, and kind of feeling in control, the other thing I really wanted to ask you was about was about motherhood, actually. And I'm relating it to my own experience of fatherhood, which is kind of probably a, a very different experience. I know, well, I know it's a very different experience from the, the female to the male, but did, how do you think it will affect your appetite for risk going forward? Because I certainly don't drive as fast as I used to. I certainly have one eye on... So, for example, on my motorbike that I'm going on tomorrow, I've got two of my daughter's hairbands on the little brake reservoir that sits up on the handlebar, which is kind of my reminder that I've got to get home, you know? Like, it not to oh. not to be an idiot. And it's kind of... It's weird. Like everyone says, oh, yeah, you know, it will change you, change your perspective on everything forever. And you sit there and you think, oh, yeah, it's just rubbish, like what you're saying. And, and it's not, you know, it's not true. And I've come to realize that. And it's, um, it's sort of super interesting. Did, how, how Has it changed you personally up to this point? And how do you think it will change your, change your kind of demeanor on snow in the future? Um, interesting. On snow, as I did go back onto skis and I got through three weeks or so of teaching in, mm. I got a couple of rips around a bit faster than, than my lesson pace. So I could ski for <laughs> myself a couple of times, not much, but um, I was wondering how it would feel. I was wondering how physically I'd feel and mentally I'd feel. So firstly, physically, I skied a lot of last season pregnant. Um, right. So I skied up to, I taught up to five months, which luckily coincided with pretty much April, Easter time. Um, there was no pressure on that. I just felt good. If I'd stopped feeling safe or good about it, I would have stopped and that would have been fine. But yeah. um, everything stayed neat. I felt secure and I just chose my lessons carefully. So I wasn't running yeah. level three technical base exams at five months pregnant. I was just cruising around on the yeah, nursery yeah. slope with the little girl. So, okay. you know, um, but I did find my own skiing was a bit funny last year, uh, especially to, as I got further along um, with center math. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, changed yeah. a lot. Huh. I was just stuck on the back end of the skis. I could not get forwards enough. Um, I couldn't fit into my ski trousers. That was the most dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Doing up boots. <laughs> no, um, the skiing physically actually wasn't hideous. I did a lot of projects last uh, winter, including going to into ski, and I felt fine to do that. Towards yeah. the end, uh, balance back seat was a bit funny, and just balance in general. Um, but I enjoyed skiing right up till I, I stopped. Went back this year, obviously, kind of back to normal, but not really. I mean, it was mm. still, she was six, five, six months, so the body still got a bit of time yeah. to go, and I just tried to respect that. Someone, another female trainer actually called Elaine, said to me, just give yourself a break. Remember, you know, you grew a baby for nine months, your body needs nine months to recover. Yeah, yeah, allow sure. that at least. So I was like, okay, not going to push it. 
Mm. And skiing wise, physically felt okay. I was worried that I was going to feel really unfit. I was a little bit worried about uh, joints and being a bit loose and mm-hmm. uh, hormonal changes and stuff. But actually, I did a couple of t- runs a bit sheepish, worrying about these things. And then I just got fully inspired into feeling normal mm-hmm. and mentally didn't have any any worries really actually if I'm totally honest I haven't found that motherhood has affected me on a set of skis if I'm on piste and ripping around I'm happy to go for it pretty fast where it has changed my perspectives probably off piste and what choices I'm making about going off piste yeah I haven't had a huge amount of opportunity this season Mm. um but that to me is where the risk is lying I I'm aware that I'm talking from a person that has been skiing their entire life so I'm, I feel very very comfortable in a pair of skis and mm-hmm. so that's definitely going to be different for everyone um skiing is something that I just I feel so at home with and I'm really pleased that motherhood hasn't changed that yeah I feel just as happy on them as I did before but the environment choice is definitely affected um like you yeah. like you say just making important and decisions and remembering and, and just being aware that it was important before Mm. God, it was important to select particular terrain to go off piste in, but uh, it suddenly became. I did have one day out with my husband, and it became so apparent that we were both off piste, and I got really freaked out. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. back on the piste. Yeah. And then for those that are maybe okay, well, someone sitting listening to this thinking, "Well, I don't. I haven't got skiing from a young age. I didn't learn to ski as a." you know, walk kind of thing. Mm. Um, I then relate to that in, on my mountain bike. So I started learning kind of downhill biking a couple of years ago. I'm still mm. very new at it. I had a year off last summer um, being pregnant. And it's something I'm still learning. And I find it very useful uh, for my, as I said before, for my teaching. But it's that's where I'm not taking as many risks. And I've found that motherhood is just kind of reined me in a little bit on the bike because it's something I'm not as happy with, I'm not as at home with. Yeah. Um, technically, I'm not as good at I'm still learning lots. I still fall off lots. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's just reining me in a little bit. I'm not as going for it as much as possible. I used to fall off and be like, oh, it's fine, I'll fall off. And, yeah. Uh, but I'm like, if you fall off and you hurt yourself, it's going to make everything really difficult for Effie and trying to look after her with a broken something and yeah uh, it's definitely in the back of my mind more uh with something i'm not as uh, technically good at it's really so. it's, it, it's very it's been a very interesting thing for me like i've never really given that much thought to the, the the future really um until until zoe came along and now there's like there's a file on my computer that's literally marked it sits on the desktop which uh, this is going to sound weird i think i probably can out myself as a weirdo but it, there's a file on top of my computer that says now if i am dead so like you know, my wife can click on that, and everything's in there, like passwords to everything. And there's the same file that sits above my head, so just in case. But then I got round to thinking, well, what happened if like, what happened if there was a car accident? So we were playing golf this morning, right? Myself and my wife, and we came back. So what happens if there was a car accident, and we both kind of didn't make it home for whatever reason? Like, what happens? How does that all work? I said to my wife, like, do we know anyone who like works in the police? Like that we can ask, like what the procedure is, because how do they contact grandparents or guardians or whatever? Like how does that all go down? And I'd never ever considered this stuff before. 
And it's really... Yeah, asbestos are not in this country. No, that's right. Well, I was going to ask you about that too. So you're presumably, like your your parents, Dougie's parents, don't don't live in France, I guess. Or, or do they? No. no. No, they're all back in Scotland. No, we are, all our family's back in Scotland. Yeah, you see, this is we got the same thing. So Bryn's Bryn's mother lives in um, in Montreal, Canada, and, and my parents live in the UK. And I always say to her, like, we're doing this the hard way. Like, I'm I'm sort of, I speak to my friends, and they're like, oh yeah, you know, we went out this weekend, and you know, grandparents were looking after this, and we went and did this, that, and the other. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm so jealous of you because you know, we're on our own here essentially. You know, I think it was we were like two and a half years in or something, or two and a half, maybe a bit more than that years in before we had a night off like we managed to get a babysitter to stay the night it's like wow this is just you don't realize how important yeah. it is having those guys around yeah i think lockdown has, has helped that speed that up a little bit for us mm. um and it's because we were quite Effie was very fortunate in that one way or another she saw uh, she has two grands uh grannies and a granddad and she saw them every month of her life up until she was about six months old just mm-hmm. by the way that we were doing trips back and forth um or visits out here and then it's been it's been months now so mm-hmm. much has happened nearly four months and uh, it's hard so when you realize uh, i've realized through lockdown just how rubbish it is to be so far apart mm-hmm. it's not easy no uh, okay even i know in confinement we could have been five miles apart and not seeing each other but um it's it's just that it's going to sound awful. It's, it's not the relentlessness of it, but it is in a way that it's very different. It's a huge adjustment, uh, and any parent that's listening will, will know that. But yeah. anyone that's not <laughs> a yeah. parent yet, it is. Uh, everyone will tell you it's going to change your life. It's really great, but you know yeah. you just don't know what sleep deprivation is until you have a kid and <laughs> think, oh, well, I was pregnant and I didn't sleep much during pregnancy. That's uh, that's not even comparable. No, that's a warm-up. Yeah. <laughs> and just uh, you'll learn patience and you'll learn that you have patience you didn't think you had and you're thinking, gosh, this is all sounding a bit dramatic. Yeah. Um, and then you, you, you get on with it and, you you know, you enjoy it. But in the last few days, actually, I've just been reflecting back. I'm like, yeah, actually, we have learned patience. Yep, I'm fairly mm. sleep-deprived and... Uh, yeah, it's quite difficult. We we recently just popped down. I say popped down because of our location. We can get to Italy quite easily. Yeah. We went to the coast on Italy mm. for a holiday and a bit of a change of scene. So it's a long weekend. Mm. Um, but a holiday with a 10-month-old is, is not a holiday <laughs> like a holiday used to be. And it was really eye-opening. We came home absolutely shattered. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. Uh, yeah, babies on beaches, whew, that was tough. Yeah, you could not, you know, not even five seconds unattended, or there was a house full of this gravelly sand in there getting chewed down. As oh man, (laughs) from sunburn, but not get heat rash, and it was a big learning curve. Yeah, Um, so I've realised, you know, what it's like to actually, yeah, you know, even our conversation. We've been planning this for a couple of weeks now, Mm. and Dougie'd take the day off work so that Effie can be out of the house and even yeah. as though this is nap time for her it's never guaranteed she's going to sleep right through yeah. and then oh hang on I'm going upstairs to resettle her <laughs> or she's screaming in the background so you know it's just yeah you just gotta rethink how you do things a bit but it would be nice to have family nearby absolutely yeah um especially uh getting out for just doing a wee bit of, of original me things like 
mm. any bike run or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I found really inspiring about the skiing. And I think I'm just going to quickly revert back to that question about mm. um, how you feel on skis after after having the baby yeah. and, and as motherhood changing it. And this year, when I did go and do that first lesson back, having um, had Effie, mm. I was absolutely buzzing after it. I, I mean, buzzing. I, I came home and Dougie was like, what? What happened? And I was like, it was just <laughs> so inspiring because I went yeah. on that hill. Yeah. And I get quite, if you haven't told, can't tell already, I get quite into things, the long answers and whatnot. <laughs> but I get right into my teaching. And uh, so my brain is just really focused on these clients. I didn't think about Effie for three hours. Mm. And we're up on the mountain and everything was the same. Mm. The mountain was the same. The skiing felt the same. The snow felt the same. The teaching, it was the same as things were before she came along. Mm. But having a baby is so cataclysmic. Like it's such a thing to happen to your life. It's massive. Yeah. Everything changes. So then to go in the hill and of those three hours where I felt like nothing had changed, yeah. it was amazing. And uh, just as buzzing. And I was so gutted that <laughs> we didn't get the rest of the winter. Yeah. I was even meant to be in Hintertooth doing some basic courses at the end of the season and we yeah. were all going to go. <laughs> no, no, yeah. So that Effie was in Austria, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's what it is. Uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be all right. I think I'm. I'm. The more and more of this goes on, I'm. I'm convinced that it's. You know, this isn't going to happen again. There's just not. Um, there's just not the amount of resources for the government to keep people at home anymore. It's just, you know, at some point as a society, we've got to say, well, right, we've just got to go on. You know, we can't just keep hiding. That's not going to work. That's not the spirit that got us. You know, got us to this yeah. point here. Um, you know, to where we are. So, uh, yeah, it feels a bit like that. Yeah, they've just right. They've just had know, enough. Got to get back to them tonight. No, it's true. Same yeah. in Switzerland, you know. Everyone's. I know that UK is still a bit weird. Um, but but in this country, like you wouldn't even know in Switzerland here, you wouldn't even know it happened. Apart from a bit of disinfectant here and there, and your your person wearing mask, you know, like it's it's just yeah, it's just like business as usual. It's really weird. Well, yeah. Italy was very interesting. Um, it was very apparent that it happened there. Mm. But it was very black and white, very regulated. This is what you do. So um, you had to wear a mask in any public building, inside any public space, mm-hmm. masks had to be worn. So everyone would walk around with their, their mask handy because you'd be having it on and off. Yeah. You don't need to walk the street wearing it. But okay. also every entrance to everywhere and in random places, there's gel available and stands to go and wash your hands. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's just in your face all the time. Mm. Not rammed in your face, but it just reminds you that actually, yeah, something went on and we need to be a bit mindful of this. Mm. But it was really clear what the rules were. Mm. We're actually joking because people were walking around wearing masks in different ways, you know, in between shops. So, you know, do you leave it hooked around your ears and you have it as sort of a chin bra? <laughs> or do you hook it around your wrist as a bracelet? Yeah. Or do you have it with the sort of dangle out your pocket, looking cool kind of thing? So yeah. <laughs> I'd mind hanging from the pram. But uh, it was super clear, whereas where I live in, in France right now, some shops it's obligatory to wear a mask, some mm. shops it's not. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a bit, getting a bit grey, um... And then in the UK in themselves, you know, the rules have been different between all the different home nations and Scotland's as we record this, have only really just opened up. Yeah. At the weekend was the first time you could go, I think it was the weekend, more than five miles mm. on a non-essential journey. And then some beer gardens started opening up and things are, no, they've not in Scotland, sorry, they've still to happen. Yeah. But they're a bit behind England. So, you know, for my 
when our parents are, it's uh, still very much new to be out and about. It's very new. Yeah, it's very strange. Very strange. Um, but um, we'll see what happens to our industry. Yeah. I think the tourists are coming here. That we're, we're busy and yeah. we're, the tourists are coming. The, there's British tourists here as well. Mm-hmm. The quarantine's been lifted. So um, I have faith because I like to be an optimist that we'll have good winters. Yeah. <laughs> I think you've got to be. All right. Um uh, where can um where can people find you if they want to want to find you when they're next in Val they're looking for a ski instructor? Where, where where can they go? So the best um bet is we've got a website which is valdskiinstructors.com. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few magazines float around Val Desert, like the Guide to Val Desert, mm-hmm. this guide and number two, and so we've got details in there, um, or online, literally, literally just throw in my name, which is Lynn Mill, yeah. ski instructor, into Google, and it will come up with a Facebook page or the website where um, some form of contact detail that you can get in touch with. So, All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll make a note of those in the um, in the in the podcast notes, and um, yeah, I appreciate you um, taking the time out of uh, out of your day and your schedule to, to to have a chat. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been nice to discuss something that's not um, coronavirus or babies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's great, isn't it? But things are returning. Definitely, it's got my brain working. I'm still suffering from sleep deprivation, so uh, I hope some of that's made sense and not been too waffly, but. You know, it's, it's good to get back into things. <laughs> well, if, you, if, if you're really really smart now, what you can do is probably get in another half an hour nap before Dougie gets back. That's yeah. going to be the way to do it. Or right back here angle article before I have the no, doctor back. <laughs> no, sleep, sleep first. You can write an article later. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Thank you so much. Well, thanks very much to you. Take care. And you, thank you.